facing the southernmost edge of the Ring Street, just above the Karlsplatz underground station, stands the Wiener Staatsoper, Vienna's state opera house. If you take a few minutes to wander around the outside of the building, it may strike you as a structure you'd more likely see in Florence or Rome than in the Austrian capital. With its vaulted arcades, hemispherical masonry arches, dancing cherub sculptural reliefs, and geometric moldings, columns, and balustrades, the Staatsoper is meant to evoke the Renaissance, the era in which opera was born. In the last decade of the 16th century, a group of music enthusiasts called the Florentine Camerata decided to try to recreate classical Greek tragedy. They had texts from the 3rd and 4th century BC to work from, but these were mostly play scripts, with little information on how tragedies were logistically brought to the stage. So the Camerata members, including Vincenzo Galilei, Galileo Galilei's father, looked at sketches of the giant outdoor Greek amphitheaters and focused on a practical question. How would the entire audience, sometimes as large as 20 to 40,000 people, hear the actors on stage? The Camerata's answer, since sung text carries better acoustically than spoken text, the actors must have been singing. In 1597, the Camerata members produced an all-sung adaptation of the Greek myth of Daphne at the Medici court. This was the very first example of what we now know as opera. Believe it or not, the Camerata's singing hypothesis does have some merit, for the same reason that mountain cultures around the world developed yodeling techniques to communicate across large distances. But modern researchers have determined that classical Greek theater was probably spoken. The inclined curve structure of the semicircular amphitheater actually provides its own architectural amplification. Plus, the Greeks used porous limestone for the closest rows to the stage, which, according to recent research, serves to filter out the low-frequency noises of foot shuffling and audience murmuring that might dampen the sound of the actors' voices. If you visit these sites today, it's not uncommon for tour guides to ask their groups to scatter throughout the audience and then strike a match on stage. The sound can be heard all the way in the back row without any kind of additional amplification. By the way, while we're on the subject, it is a persistent myth that masks were used to amplify sound in theater of antiquity. This wasn't the case. Lightweight, probably leather masks were worn by actors, but only to allow for individuals to play multiple roles or female characters. Women weren't allowed on stage. And none survive. The ones you see in museums are decorative wall hangings or votives made of carved stone. So opera was created on a false premise as a court entertainment in the late Renaissance. It's fitting then that the opera house here references that period architecturally, but the building isn't nearly that old. While it's the oldest of the 10 monumental Ring Street buildings, it only dates to the mid-19th century. That means it's actually Renaissance Revival, or the term more frequently used in Austria, Neo-Renaissance. Completed in 1869 by architects August Sickard von Sickardsburg and Eduard van der Nuhl, this structure was originally named the Hofoper, or Court Opera. In fact, this was considered the new Court Opera when it was initially completed, since it was simply the new location for a cultural institution that had already existed for several centuries at that point. And the name has changed a few times over the years, 
most dramatically following the abolition of the monarchy at the end of World War I, when the Opera House was taken over by the state. The structure you see before you today mostly dates to 1869. I say mostly because much of the rear of the building, the side facing the Saha Hotel, suffered extensive damage during the Second World War, but more on that in a minute. In 1860, Emperor Franz Josef I decided to demolish the massive defensive wall that used to encircle what is now the First District, and repurpose the land to better serve the growing metropolis. This involved filling in the moat that extended around parts of the exterior base of the wall, and selling off much of the vast expanse of no-man's land between the moat and the encroaching edges of the neighboring districts. A few plots of this land were kept for municipal building projects. The opera was the first of these to be completed, which ought to give you an idea of Viennese priorities. But being the first project out of the gate came with certain disadvantages. Specifically, the Ringstrasse, the broad boulevard that encircles the inner city, hadn't yet been completed, which meant that the Opera House architects, Van der Nuhl and Sickert von Sickertsburg, had to start work on the Opera House without knowing the finished elevation of the street on which it would sit. The engineers constructing the Ringstrasse provided them with initial estimates, which allowed work to proceed, but ultimately it turned out that those figures were off by more than a meter. You might have noticed around the front that only two shallow steps separate the level of the Ringstrasse and the main entrance to the Opera House. This is because the staircase leading up to the entrance had to be filled in, giving the facade an unintended sunken appearance only exacerbated by the contrast with the other buildings nearby. The public response upon the opera's completion in 1869 was pretty unfavorable. Locals derided it as a sunken trunk, and Emperor Franz Josef remarked that it looked like a cross between a barn and a train station. As you can imagine, this negative reception was not well received by the poor architects. In fact, van der Nuhl committed suicide, and Sigurd von Sigurdsburg died only weeks later of what was widely cited as a broken heart, though it was actually tuberculosis. Of course, the monarch felt terrible that his words had driven the architects to their graves, and he resolved to curb his honesty when asked for his opinion in the future. If he didn't like something, he was known to smile politely and say, Es war sehr schön, es hat mich sehr gefreut, or it was very nice and I enjoyed it very much. To this day, if they don't like something, many Viennese will still use this phrase to indicate that they're politely biting their tongue. As it turns out, Emperor Franz Josef's critique had some truth. During the aerial bombing missions to take out Vienna's oil refinery and train stations in mid-March of 1945, British and American pilots looked out of their cockpits, saw a bird's-eye view of the Opera House, and thought it must be the South Train Station, today's main train station actually more than two kilometers farther south. Five Allied bombs landed on the Staatsoper and nearby water supplies, also making it impossible for the locals to extinguish the ensuing fire which then burned uncontrolled for two days and nights. Ultimately, nearly the entire back end of the building was destroyed, including the stage, music archive, scenery for more than 120 productions, and about 150,000 costumes. Of course, this was a devastating loss, and it took another 10 years before the opera was able to host audiences again. But one of the advantages of needing major structural renovations in the mid-20th century 
was that the stage house could be gutted and retrofitted with the latest technology. One thing you might notice around the rear side of the building, the large cargo doors built to accommodate the insertion of an entire semi-trailer, which allow for easy load-in and load-out. The container is slipped directly into a massive elevator and lowered directly to stage level for unpacking and assembly. In addition to the large sub-stage space, 11 meters or 36 feet below stage level, the stage is flanked by three additional stage size open areas on each side and to the rear, two of which can be closed off visually and acoustically with large moving walls. The best part, though, the stage itself is composed of six long, narrow platforms, each about three meters wide and 18 meters long. That's roughly 10 feet by 60 feet, all controlled by pneumatic lift systems, so these platforms can be independently raised, lowered, moved back and forth, and even over and under each other. Add in the 26 meters, more than 85 feet, of fly space above the stage that can lift nearly 40,000 kilos, that's nearly 45 US tons, and you've got a dynamic, state-of-the-art system capable of meeting the technical needs of the house's 300 performances each year. That's at least one three-hour rehearsal and one full performance every single day between the beginning of September and the end of June, with the exceptions of Good Friday, Christmas Eve, and the world-famous Opera Ball. On top of which, these productions change daily, which means multiple performances of three to four different operas and ballets every week for a total of between 50 and 60 different productions each year about double the number offered annually by the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Fair warning, I spend much of the remainder of this episode talking about the experience of visiting the Staatsoper from the inside. And unless you're here in the roughly hour-long window before a performance, entering the foyer will require a ticket for the Staatsoper's tour. So since you probably won't be able to look at what I'm talking about, you might want to use this time to start making your way toward the next destination on this tour. I'll continue with some tips on catching a performance and what to expect inside the Staatsoper. Of course, if this doesn't align with your interest or itinerary, feel free to just skip ahead to the next episode. But if you get a chance to go inside the state opera, you'll be entering through the part of the structure that suffered the least damage in 1945. The main staircase was left comparatively intact, and the post-war renovations aimed to restore most of the audience-accessible areas to their late 19th century appearance. If you're able to, during an intermission, I encourage you to explore these areas as much as you can. You'll discover several beautiful open-air balconies and access points to the rooftop terrace, as well as interior spaces, such as the marble hall and gallery-level foyer, completed by architect Erich Boltenstern in 1955. While the auditorium features a few notable modern appointments, like the individual touchscreens for subtitles and the annually redesigned mural on the Iron Curtain, its architectural design and appointments are straight out of the early 19th century. First thing you'll notice is probably the private loges, especially the large central one at the back that used to be the imperial box. These are the vestiges of an older architectural model from a time when theaters drew the majority of their revenue from the seasonal rental of such loges to wealthy noble families who would outfit them with their own furniture. For most of its history, going to the opera was equal parts entertainment and social event. It wasn't common for the house lights to dim until the late 19th century, 
So people carried on conversations, played chess, even ate their dinners during the performance. And you may have noticed, the perspective from many of the loges to the stage requires the viewer to uncomfortably crane their neck for several hours in order to watch the show. What's much easier is people watching, observing other audience members across the auditorium. The one exception is the Emperor's Box, which can comfortably take in the performance and all of the assembled subjects at a glance. Architecture always sends a message, and in state-sponsored cultural institutions like this, it's usually a political one. Fortunately these days, the Staatsoper is working to erode these outdated conceptions of who opera is meant for. Not only do productions speak to a range of styles and aesthetics, from early Baroque to newly commissioned contemporary work, they are also made accessible to a broad range of spectators, from tourist visitors to students to season ticket holders across a variety of media. Nearly every work produced here is also offered as a live online event through their streaming service, and older recordings are available in their video archive for a nominal fee. Of course, as great as these filmed productions are, live performance is a unique experience. And the house has a few budget-friendly options. During the warmer months, the opera erects a large LED screen and sound system on the east side square to offer a free live transmission to people outdoors. In addition to the roughly 1,700 seats in the house, there's also cheap standing room for roughly 570 people. For between 2 and 10 euros, you can lean against a railing in either the parterre, balcony, or gallery with access to your own touchscreen for translated subtitles. Tickets can be purchased online. The cheapest option is available to holders of the free Bundestheater card, available from the Bundestheater ticket office on Operngasse, opposite the stage door, or in person 80 minutes prior to the performance from an entrance marked Stehplatz, or standing room tickets, in the arcade along the building's Operngasse side. If you're opting for the Stehplatz standing room experience, here are a couple of pro tips. First, bring a scarf or a tie to mark your spot on the railing when you're let inside. This will allow you to leave and grab some refreshments or go to the bathroom before the show starts and during the intermission. Just remember, no water or other food or beverages are allowed inside the auditorium, so leave your water bottle at home and be sure to finish or tuck away anything other than cough drops. Two, while there's no strict dress code for the standing room areas, you'll probably get some gruff from an usher if you show up in tattered tennis shoes, sandals, or torn clothing. Smart casual is your best bet, and be sure to come in comfortable footwear. Three, at an average of between 95 and 99%, this opera house enjoys the highest nightly attendance rate of any in the world. And for popular productions or certain star performers, fans are often willing to go to great lengths to secure tickets. It's a good idea to check ticket availability online before showing up in person. For some shows, especially operas by Wagner, who has a devoted fan base here, you may be competing with folks willing to stand in line outdoors for 10 to 12 hours just to get a ticket to stand through a five-and-a-half-hour Wagner opera. Four, like cheese, opera comes in a huge variety. While some are beginner-friendly and have broad popular appeal, your mozzarellas and mild cheddars, others can be pretty daunting or off-putting to first-timers, like a really pungent Limburger or a stinking bishop. If you have an unenjoyable experience once, 
don't let it put you off opera altogether. You may have just gotten a taste of Stilton when you're not really a fan of blue cheeses. If you're looking for something beginner-friendly, Mozart is generally a good option. You could also try an early 19th century comedy by Rossini or Donizetti, or if you want something dramatic, Puccini and Verdi pack a good punch. And even if you find yourself hating the set design or costumes or staging decisions, you can always close your eyes and still get a sublime live experience of one of the world's preeminent orchestras. Whatever you end up seeing or hearing, keep in mind, a big part of the fascinating appeal of opera is that it's a microcosm of the world in which it was created. As both a product of and a response to its socio-political, economic, and cultural environment, an opera bears traces of these power structures and aesthetic priorities. Nothing in an opera is an accident. It's identifying and questioning these traces that makes live opera such a rich experience. And question everything. There are no stupid questions. Asking why are they singing the entire time is just as valid as which one is the French horn or why is Salome only 90 minutes long and Einstein on the beach around five hours without an intermission. There's nothing more damaging to a new experience than the feeling that your perspective isn't valid. So remember, the work should come to you just as much as you're coming to the work. And articulating what you did and didn't like about the experience might surprise you. We're now headed to the Nashmarkt, Vienna's largest open-air market, which is about a 10-minute walk away from the opera. You'll want to head down Opangasse, that's the street running along the opera's west side, the same side as the Albertina Museum, cross the Ring Street at the light, being aware of tram and bike traffic, and continue down the street about three blocks. You'll know you're headed in the right direction if you see a cafe and pastry shop labeled Aida in pink neon lettering on your right when you're crossing the ring. Stay on this street as it curves slightly to the right and is joined by multiple lanes of one-way car traffic. Two of these lanes will peel off to the right. You'll want to stay with the other three as they straighten out. So cross the crosswalk at the light and continue straight you'll see a gleaming white little building on your right side with a big gold ball of leaves on the top. This is the secession, which I address in the next episode. The market itself is just a bit further at the end of the next block on your left. You'll recognize it by its numerous little roofs and two pedestrian walkways in between the open-air stalls.